The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Today, I'm going to talk about the smallest verse of them all. It's the tiniest verse in the Bible, and maybe you already know what it is. Does anybody know? Jesus wept. John 11.35. So if you have a Bible, go turn to chapter 11, because we want to look at the context. I'm always telling you about context and why context is so important, right? It's, It's important to interpret the Bible accurately, You know, to understand what it's saying to you, not to put some crazy meaning in there. You know, you can't just go to one little section, pull out a little piece, and say what that means. Because that little piece is connected to other pieces that clarify what it means. So context is absolutely important. So the entire chapter of 11, chapter 11, is the context for this tiny, tiny verse. It's actually another the verse that's uh, two words as well, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, which says, rejoice always, but it has, well, I think, 13 letters. Jesus wept has less than that, so it is still the smallest. I bet you were wondering what the third largest or smallest, third smallest verse is, right? I know you were just dying to figure that out. 1 Thessalonians 517 that says pray without ceasing. So we got two words, three words. The next one, the next smallest, 1 Thessalonians 519, don't quench the spirit, four words. Seeing a pattern here, right? The next one is John 2126, five words, give the ball to Lynch. So you can go ahead and look that up. It's actually there. Just trust me, John 21, verse 26. You know what the longest verse in the Bible is? I looked this up. I'm curious. Well, that's the smallest. What's the longest? Absolutely hilarious. It's in the book of Esther. Figures, right? (laughs) I mean, a female book? Of course it's going to be the longest verse. (laughs) Esther 8, 9 rambles on and on about nothing. So anyway, there you go. You have it. The short and the long of it. This story in John 11 is primarily about the death of Lazarus and his resurrection, Jesus bringing him back from the dead. That's the whole context of the story. And within it, there are little sub-stories. There's this, this, this interaction with Martha and Mary and Jesus and the other people involved in the story. It's a big group of people. And so you have subplots within the main plot, but it's basically about that. And so... Uh, For the sake of just being focused this morning, let's just zero in on verse 35. Jesus wept, and let's look at the significance of that. So that's the whole point today, is just to look at uh, Jesus weeping, see what it means to us, okay? So Jesus has left Jerusalem at this point now, and uh, he is traveling, and he's working his way to uh, other cities, and then eventually he'll come back to Jerusalem. And as we know, he'll begin the final week of his life on earth and his ministry on earth. And so he's ministering. He gets this urgent message. Jesus, Jesus, 
Lazarus, whom you love, your close friend, is really, really sick and he's going to die. He gets this urgent message. But because Jesus is God, he already knows. He's already seen that event. He has that future knowledge. He already knows Lazarus is going to die. And so he speaks to the disciples metaphorically. Look at verse 11. You'll see it. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And so because the disciples are thick in the head, they don't get it. And so their response is, well, then, Lord, there's no point in going back there. He'll be just fine if he's sleeping. So I love uh, verse 14. This is the Lord's response to them. Then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, you jarheads. That's my emphasis. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So he's developing this miracle here. See, if Jesus was there in Bethany and Lazarus died and Jesus was there at his bedside and then he touched him and he came back to life, people would question that. They'd say, oh, he wasn't really dead or, you know, you faked it. You know, it, it wouldn't be the same as if he were dead for four days. Especially the Jews had a lot of... Um, conspiracy thoughts about how many days you were dead. And so four was like the final number. After four days, it is over, over. And so Jesus purposely delays four days. So it's absolutely obvious this guy is dead. And then when he goes to raise him from the dead, it is that much of a bigger miracle. And that's what's going on here. He wants to build their faith. Take a look at verse 16. It's absolutely hilarious, I think. I think John probably laughed when he wrote this. He says, Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, Well, then let us go that we may die with him. (laughs) There's always one melancholy in every group, isn't there? The one guy that just doesn't believe anything's going to help. Anyway, that's him. Jesus gets to Bethany four days later. Mary and Martha come out to meet Jesus, and of course, their brother's been dead, and they are deep, deep into some heavy, heavy grief. Look at verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, he fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now Jesus, after this, went to the tomb where Lazarus was. He was deeply moved again. And then he speaks to Lazarus. He comes back to life and the whole miracle unfolds. And John tells us that many, 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 many people had their faith increased because they saw that miracle. And of course, they would, right? Yours would and mine mine would as well. But way, way, way back in the 1500s, there was a priest named Robertus Stephanastus. He's the guy who went and took the Bible and said, 
Now, this is too difficult for the common man to read the way it is. Let's put verses in here. It already been separated by chapters. That was done earlier. Now we're going to add verses so it's easier to read, you know, with margins, stop and start points. So we added in all the verses. So in this chapter, when he came to the part where it said Jesus wept, he made that one sentence. It ended up being the smallest verse in the Bible. Why? Why? Why was it so important that he make those two words their own statement? Jesus wept. Well, obviously it was for emphasis, right? He wanted us to, as we're reading this story, stop at that point and let that sink in. Jesus, who is Jesus? He's, he's the son of God. He has been, had no beginning and no end. He's been here from the, prior to the beginning of the earth and always been and always will be. He's God. He's creator. He's Jesus, supreme Lord. And he wept. For the most, for the most part, that's pretty weird. No other religion has this characteristic of their God crying, because in a lot of cultures, a crying God is a weak God. And so Allah and so many other the Hindu gods, none of them would be portrayed as crying. That's too weak. But here we see Jesus, he wept. He actually, in the, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus wept three times, three different times. See Jesus weeping in the New Testament. So let's look at those, and maybe there's something that we can get from this that'll speak to us today, this tiny little verse with big impact. The first one here, John 11, 35, Jesus wept. This one is explained with the story that it contained in chapter 11. The story explains it. Jesus is not weeping because Lazarus is dead, right? because he knew he was going to die. He knew it four days prior. So obviously he's not crying because Lazarus is dead, and he knows that in a few minutes he's going to be alive again. So there's no point in being upset or cry or have tears or mourning or anything. So it wasn't because of that. The only thing that it can be about is the fact that Jesus saw Mary and Martha, and he saw their grief and he was moved to tears. If you look, the, the tense in Greek here makes it sound more like Jesus burst into tears. It just exploded out of them, out of him. He, he saw their deep sorrow and grief, their brother was dead, and then jumped out of him his weeping. Jesus Catch this, catch this now. Jesus felt their pain. You know what that means? Do you know what that means? Jesus felt their pain. And so he wept over that. Clearly means that he feels your pain. He feels your pain. When you suffer, when you go through a hardship, a difficult, bad day, Jesus feels it. 
pretty powerful when you think about it. People say, oh, yeah, 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 I know God loves us. God loves us, Jesus loves us, blah, 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 yeah, yeah. No. He really, really cares for you to the point where he feels what you're going through. His tears are real. Jesus is not just going through the motion. He's not making a show. He's not trying to tell them anything. All he's doing is identifying with their pain and weeping with them. That's that's incredibly comforting to those who hurt. If you're hurting, if you have sorrow, it's incredibly comforting to know that Jesus wept. You know, different Christians have tried to, my friends and family have tried to comfort me in my own suffering. And so every now and then you get a well-meaning Christian say something really stupid like, you know, John, God is teaching you a lesson. Oh, joy. Thank you. I feel so much better now. God is teaching me a lesson. Or maybe they'll find a Bible verse that's special to them, you know, something like uh, Judas hanged himself. And they read that to me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, well, okay. I mean, it, it said something to you, but it means nothing to me. Or they'll find some glib statement on Facebook. They'll Facebook me this little footprint. But the friends who come over sit down and cry with you, those are the ones who do the most good. That's the friend that connects with you in your pain. And you know, that ministers. This tiny verse, Jesus wept is really the soil to cultivate great faith. Because until you can trust Jesus, you won't put your faith in him. And so this fact that he cares for you means you can trust him, right? Because can you trust anyone that doesn't care about you? No. They don't care about you, then I'm not going to trust them. But if they care deeply for me, then I'll trust them. That causes my faith to grow. Some people say, well, I really care about you. I really love you. And then they do nothing. Well, that doesn't mean anything. It has to be expressed. Jesus isn't just saying, I love you, Mary and Martha. He's showing it, demonstrating that. These were real tears, He really cared about their suffering. Now, the second time that Jesus weeps is entirely different circumstances, but also very interesting. It's found in Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. And again, the context is in the chapter. But Jesus is headed back to Jerusalem. He's coming up to the final week of his life on earth and his ministry here called Holy Week. And so it's beginning here. He's at the Mount of Olives, he's about to go into Jerusalem. He's up there, he looks at the city, and this is what verse 41 says. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. 
Jerusalem was a, a very special place to Jesus. Jerusalem was the location where he would be sacrificed. Jerusalem was a city that he chose way, 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 way back to be uh, God's holy city. The nation of Israel would be founded in the city of Jerusalem. It's the the temple that Jesus went down into was the temple that Solomon built there. It was a very special, sacred, holy place. And Jesus looked at the city and he wept because he saw their future. He saw the very short future of Jerusalem, which was turned out to be only 40 years later, of this massive, massive slaughter. Romans came into Jerusalem and absolutely decimated the whole city, wiped it out, burned it to the ground, and slaughtered over a million Jews in the course of a few weeks. One million people wiped out and the temple brought down to rubble. All the artifacts hauled off. Everything destroyed. Jesus knew that was coming. And he wept. Wept over the city and over the people. He wept over a million people who turned on him a little bit later. Who rejected him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't know he was the Messiah. They didn't care. But yet he was weeping over them. It's interesting. Right after he weeps there... Uh, we see Luke describes this event where he goes down into the temple, pulls out a whip, and starts cleaning the place out, you know, just whipping tables and people and throwing it all over in this kind of this rage. Just, and he said, this is not what I had in mind for my house. It should not be a, a den of thieves and robbers. It should be a place of prayer. It was, he was really mad. He was confronting the nation. And so I think there's a great principle here in this one as well. And and it's simply this. Never whip before you weep. So it's it's a, a good model to follow in our own lives. That if you're gonna whip, you better weep first. Weeping comes first. There are times in our lives when we need to confront those people that we love. Maybe it's a friend, a coworker, a spouse, your children. There comes times when we have to confront, and most people absolutely hate it. And the reason why is because most people are so horrible at it. They don't know how to confront. And by the way, actually, the Bible tells us exactly how to confront. There's a perfect model of confronting in Galatians chapter 6. Read it, study it, live it. But here we're seeing that you've got to grieve first. Grieve not because your child has disobeyed you or because your friend has betrayed you, or because your boss is cheating you, but grieve over the fact that their choices are killing the relationship. That's what Jesus saw. They 
They were rejecting him, and he wept over that. He wept what he knew was coming. And I think if we stop, wait, listen, pray, feel, what is it like to walk in their shoes? What do they have to deal with on a daily basis? And where do they come from? And what's going on in their life? And I feel all that, and I get in touch with that before I confront. I think that what would happen would be some of our confronting would actually be very gentle and produce great results. Because we've taken the time to feel their pain before we confront. So never get out the whip until you've first done the time weeping over it. And I'm not saying literally weeping and crying, but considering it, thinking about it, putting yourself in their shoes, imagine their life. I think if we follow that, if we do that, then our whipping will be very gentle. The results will be very, very good. Never discipline a child in anger. Never. Never. This will help you do that. The last time that we see Jesus weeping is found in Hebrews 5 and verse 7. It says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. This is uh, referring to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So now we're just a little bit farther along. The last week of his life, we come down to the end. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying and weeping. Now, I don't believe that Jesus was praying and weeping and under such duress because of the torture. Because I think he was a lot stronger than that. And many other Christians after him endured that and worse, while singing, while praising God with great courage. So it's not because of that. It's because at moment the father was going to turn his back on him, and for the very first time he would be completely and utterly alone in total darkness, void of the presence of God. And that was terrifying to Jesus, though he was praying And he was weeping because he was about to go and atone for us, for people. Now, they say that if you really love somebody, then you know all of their faults and flaws, but still choose them. Right? That's what that's that's a love that's real, that's a love that's lasting, that's a love that's eternal is knowing every bad thing about them, but still choosing to be in the relationship. Right? Well, if that's the case, then why is it that so many people, when they find out something wrong about that person, absolutely divorce them? That's for another day. Let me address those who are dating for now. All right? So if you're dating... 
What would happen if you met this person, you fell in love with them, and then they cheated on you? Would you stay with that person, or would you leave them? I'd probably leave them, just being honest. What if you, that, that person, you know, cried and said they were sorry, and I'll never do it again, please stay, and so then you decide to stay, and then you eventually get married. And then three months later, after you're married, he cheats on you again, or she cheats on you. Would you stay? Or would you bolt? Let's get ridiculous, okay? I mean, just like absurd ridiculous. Ready? What if you got married, and they cheated on you, and you forgave them, and then they did it a third, a fourth, and a fifth time? Would you stay with them? See, the point I'm getting at here is this is exactly what Jesus did. Paul says it beautifully. He says, uh, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's, That's the powerful truth here, I think, of Jesus weeping in the garden is the fact that he saw all of our faults all of our sins, all of our betrayal, all of our rebellion, he saw all of it in advance and said, I choose. Now, that's either, that's either two things, okay? That's either mental illness, right? To choose a person who knowingly is going to betray you for the rest of their life or your life, that's insanity, or that's God's love. It's nothing else. Okay, only a God could do that. Only a God could love somebody like that. Or it's insanity. C.S. Lewis described it that way himself. Normal, well-adjusted people don't love other people that way unless you're God. So Jesus saw all of it, said, I still choose you. All the times that you betrayed him, all the times that you ignored him and did your own thing, all the times when you knew you were going to do something wrong and you did it anyway, he said, after all of that, that I still choose you. That's amazing love. That's the love that he was expressing as he wept. Jesus wept. So small and so powerful. So full of love, so full of grace. If you've had a hard time trusting God your life, maybe this one little verse can become your new foundation. And every time you begin to doubt or question God's goodness or his love, you go right back to Jesus wept. You remember, cares for you so feels your pain, loves you in spite of yourself, and that should help build your trust.